SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. It's nothing personal, Jack. It's just good business. Welcome to SequelCast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shurgy, and with me is William Thrasher. Ooh, my hearties, ho ho! And we're in the middle of talking about the Pirates of the Caribbean films, and we're going to be looking at the third one, Pirates of the Caribbean, at World's End. Uh, again, it's directed by Gore Verbinski and written by Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio. Um, and aside from the normal cast members, which we've mentioned, this also features uh, Chow Yun-Fat, which is kind of nice. But it's mainly the same cast that was in the last movie. Music by Hans Zimmer, cinematographer Darius Wolski, edited by Craig Wood and Stephen Rifkin. According to Box Office Mojo, off a budget of $300 million, this made $963.4 million. And... And as far as like Hans Zimmer scores go, this may be my favorite Hans Zimmer score. Uh, part, and I think it's in part because it's sort of atypically Hans Zimmer. It's big and boisterous and, and adventurous. There's a lot of flourishes. It's it's not the the sustained tones that I think define all of his contemporary scores. It's kind of the latter day stuff, like in the in the um, Dark Knight and stuff like that. You're right, and it, it reminds me too of, of kind of the better. You know, John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith scores of the 70s and 80s, where it's more leap motifs for characters or themes, and, you know, basically a tune you can hum, right? Um, as, as opposed to just, like, 20 minutes of... And the occasional... Yeah, every movie soundtrack sounds the same now, or a lot of them do, it seems. And but, and but also as far as like the the, the craft involved with this this movie, Gore Verbinski and cinematographer cinematographer uh, Darius Wolski, they come up with some truly amazing visuals in this film. They do. We uh, last week with the uh, Dead Man's Chest, we bagged on some of the effects. I think for whatever reason, all of this came out just a year later. The effects look much better in this one, um, for the most part. And we'll we'll get into that. But um, before we discuss the the show proper. Uh, Thrasher, when did you first watch this movie, Pirates of the Caribbean, at World's End? I uh, so as mentioned in the previous episode, uh, I I gave this movie a pass when it came out. Mm, uh, I have seen bits and pieces of this movie on cable since then, but I had not seen Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End from beginning to end uh, until uh, last night. Right, um, I saw this in the theater as I did with the second film, and I was pretty excited because the second film ended on a shameless cliffhanger of Jack running into the mouth of a kraken and all this stuff, and um, showing that, uh, oh geez, um, Jeffrey Rush came back to life and and everything. And uh, when I came out, you know, I, I felt, I remember feeling kind of exhausted, but also a, a little bit more satisfied than Dead Man's Chest. And I think this is a movie that 
if you watch it more than once, it makes a lot more sense because, uh, like Dead Man's chest, and it's not this isn't a compliment. There, there's just too much going on. It's very, very busy. I think for busyness, busyness uh, sake. Well, and it doesn't end. It just cuts off. This movie? No, no, no. Uh, oh, Dead oh, Man's chest. This movie does yeah. have a satisfying resolution. Although there's about ten of them in a row, but we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, so, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. Uh, another thing that was kind of weird about this is they came out with a um, with a video game for this, and it was it covered the events of like the first three films because they didn't come out with the game proper for the original one for, um, you know, I guess it would have been PlayStation 2 at the time. Huh. So it's sort of like a third person. Um, the Pirates of the Caribbean game I'd recommend is uh, Lego Pirates of the Caribbean. I think that one's a lot of fun. The the Lego games tend to be. Yeah, they're a bit samey, but, um, and I know this isn't a video game podcast to your listeners, but uh, the on, as long as I'm talking about Pirates video games, I do want to mention... Um, they had uh, Disney in development for several years. Had a it was going to be a, a kind of action RPG, kind of like Pirates of the Caribbean meets um, you know Dragon Age or something. Huh. And they ended up canceling it right before it was finished. That's a shame because that sounds like a premise that could really work. Yeah, and the idea is you could have your pirate be you know kind of like a good pirate or a bad pirate and a lot of branching paths. And I agree, I think that would be fun. Um, did you ever play the old computer game Sid Meier's Pirates? No, I'm afraid I did not. Oh, it, it's a delightful sim, but this is not the Pirates video game podcast, so I will get back to the the point of it. Um, okay, so just some initial things. Uh, with this film, what, what jumped out at you? Because there's so much going on here. Well, one one thing that jumped out, I was I was expecting this movie to pick up almost immediately where the, the previous film left off. But it doesn't. This movie starts uh, in Shanghai uh, quite a bit later. I'm trying. I'm. I'm trying to piece it together. Like uh, I don't know exactly how the timeline works, but it feels like this movie could take place up to a year after the previous film, which is kind of an interesting time jump. But I mean, that that's when the story kicks off. Um, the first visual we get is actually shockingly bleak, where we see a uh-huh. bunch of. <laughs> We see a bunch of pirates, suspected pirates, and pirate collaborators being led to the gallows uh, in a uh, port town controlled by the East India Company. And we see a lot of people, including a child, yes. uh, get hanged. And it's, <laughs> it is a very effective scene, but it's sort of... I'm on the fence with this scene because it, in many ways I think it is too dark for this movie. Um, I'm glad you said that. I felt much the same thing. And I almost, after seeing the scene where, and it's not graphic, you know, could extreme close-ups or whatever, but you see children and women getting hung. I almost thought, like, gee, should this movie be rated R? Is that what they really wanted to do with it? Well, it um, it, 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 it speaks to the fact that, that as far as, like, cinema ratings go, for whatever, for whatever reason, everyone is really, really comfortable with violence, but no one is comfortable with sex. And this is a Disney movie, lest we forget. And, so, but I mean, it's in which children are hung in the first minute. Like that's 
yeah, it's what absurd. It's, it's this thing because on the one hand, as I say, it is tr- it is truly effective because it is it it turns us against the East India Company and the film's principal villains real quick. Uh, it's it's that that reminder is a real a real shock to the shock to the system that that I I find really helps the rest of the movie. But the tone it's it's a it, the t- it's a tonal clash, and in many ways, it is it is too dark. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean the whole reason why the East India Company is doing this is as they, uh, as Lord Beckett and company get more um, uh, influence over you know Port Royal and all that stuff, they they issue a decree saying if you're a pirate, if you've ever been associated with a pirate, if you're suspected of being associated with a pirate, you don't get due process. There's no court system. It's just immediately sentences death. And so well, you they- have this line of like all these people. Hundreds of people. And they're all uh, singing this this remorseful pirate song. Yeah. Although it's the and the other thing that, that kind of struck me about this scene is that there's a uh, there there's this naval officer who's reading a decree about all this and like the decree where he lists all the rights you no longer have. It's mm. practically the Bill of Rights in reverse. That's funny. I didn't notice that, but that's a, a pretty clever... Um, I do think the script for this movie, for what it's worth, is better than the last one, too. And part of that is because we're getting payoffs to all the setup in Dead Man's Chest. Um, and in some cases, you get a lot of things that have nothing to do with Dead Man's Chest at all. One of my favorite things about uh, this third Pirates film is you get the idea of um, the different pirate lords, and you have different pirates from different countries and different cultures. And uh, I, I really love that aspect. You have like the, the penniless Frenchman, uh, and, and and so you have. It looks like an African pirate. You have uh, there's uh, a, a Turkish pirate. Oh yeah, a Turkish pirate uh, and a Sikh uh, Indian pirate. Uh, all sorts of things are going out. Very very well done and amusing. And I would love to see their uh, backstories or whatever flesh well, out somehow. There's such a big part in this film. I kind of wish they had been set up in the previous one. Because I would love yeah, to yeah, learn more about them. Sudden, doesn't it? All those characters. Uh, but as you mentioned, a, a lot of the beginning, and this movie takes a while before the plot gets started proper, uh, <laughs> is in is in Singapore. And um, oh, that's right, Singapore, not Shanghai. My mistake. Right, and, and they're trying to find Captain Sal Fain, played by Chow Yun Fat, and it's great to see Chow Yun Fat in a big budget uh, English movie. Like well, you don't see that. He's great, and and uh-huh. I. I gotta say, this movie shows a lot of restraint not having him whip out heavily choreographed martial arts. I mean, he he plays it more like a guy who rules through, like, sort of a ruthless charisma, which I think helps the character. Also, it took me... I knew Chow Young-Fat was in this movie. It took me a while to recognize him because they have him under some really interesting makeup. Mm-hmm, a huge scar and all this stuff, uh, all these markings on his head, and... Uh... And he he does underplay it, which is unusual for an actor playing a pirate. Um, <laughs> but but it works. He seems, you know, threatening. And when they're in Singapore, they're on his turf. And um, I guess we should say Bar- uh, Barbarossa and uh, and Elizabeth Swan. Correct. Be- and and the voodoo priestess. It's not voodoo. It's technically something else. But uh, you know what I mean. Um, they are all trying to get Jack Sparrow, um, but they have to go. And uh, meet the captain to to get these maps. That's sort of the MacGuffin he has, right? 
Yeah, he has he has some magic map they need as part of their quest to get uh, Jack Sparrow back, uh, and it's revealed. And it's really I I kind of love this this bathhouse set that they have. It's got a lot of atmosphere and character, even if it is a bit underlit. Like it doesn't. It's it's so dark and creepy in the bathhouse. It's like why would anyone go here to relax? Like it, it's a, it's the kind of thing. The way it looks, it's and this is kind of at the whole. Uh, how they make the the pirate teeth and stuff super dirty, as you mentioned, uh, it just looks like it would it, it would be a spa that smelled in the worst way, not the way a spa should smell. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it, it it's gross and yet has a nice character to it, and I I, I uh, appreciate that. And after all this setup, then uh, we go to Jack Sparrow and, and what feels like something out of a Terry Gilliam film, where we get a close up of Jack Sparrow and a peanut. Yeah, but we get we get like Jack Sparrow's nose just kind of slot. The nose is static except for the occasional sniffle, but it's just gliding along this rail until it finds a peanut. And again, there's a this is a scene that has some of the most inventive uh, and interesting visual imagery. And I'd like to point out um, we don't see Jack Sparrow until over a half hour into this film. That's quite something. Yeah, I am. The whole opening set piece in Singapore takes up that much time. Although, when I watched it, I didn't realize that much time had passed, because a lot's going on in Singapore. They rescue Will Turner, they get the map, and there's just a lot of really breathless action. Um, But we come to find out... The East India Company, led by Beckett, is assaulting them in Singapore, so there's some action going on. There's some comedic monkey action and all that. (sighs) Yeah. With the monkey from the Hangover films. Is is that the same monkey? It is the same monkey. Oh, probably the best paid monkey since uh, Coco was paid off by National Geographic in the late seventies. <laughs> but uh, so we find so this is this is you know Jack Sparrow in Davy Jones's locker, and and we learn we learn what hell truly is. Hell is being alone with seven Johnny Depp's. Yeah, so he's in Davy Jones' locker, and we wouldn't get to see what that's like. And and here, I I, I almost would like to think everyone's version of Davy Jones Locker is their personal hell, but he's he's on a ship piloted by like different versions of him, himself, and there's a, it, it's a bit like the uh, Michael Keaton film Multiplicity. Um, you know, there's like a stupid one, there's one that's kind of a, there's one we see later that's kind of a zombie, and it, it makes you think one, like... There's one that, that that is a chicken who lays eggs, there's one that clearly wants to fuck a goat. Mm-hmm. And um, you can tell Johnny Depp is having a lot of fun here taking Captain Jack Sparrow to whatever crazy ways he wants to. And uh, in a sense, this feels a bit wasteful. Like, you kind of want the story to get going, but it's it's so unpredictable and delightful in a way we haven't seen since the original film that um, I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do like the image because the, the boat is the Black Pearl, but it's in the middle of a salt flat and can't go anywhere. Yeah, and... Uh, I admit, seeing this in a theater and seeing a smash cut on the big screen to a close-up of Johnny Depp's nose in a peanut was very unsettling. <laughs> uh, and eventually these uh, crabs come and are moving the uh, Black Pearl over the sand dunes and in kind of a call-out to Jack Sparrow's introduction in the first Pirates of the Caribbean uh, movie, you see... Jack Sparrow on uh, on the top of a ship as it plays his He's a Pirate musical theme. 
But except instead of going over the oceans where his ship is sinking, his ship is being taken by crabs. It appears to be levitating, if you don't know what's happening, through the sand dunes. And that, it's, that's a really nice image. Yeah, and I, and I love the design work because the whole thing with the crabs is, is every time Jack, when Jack falls off the boat, every time he turns around, there's just this round stone behind him, which at one point he even mm, tastes mm-hmm. like he's going to have to eat it. Um, and eventually, like, that stone, like, unfolds into a crab. And it's a really neat transformation. And then all of these other stones do the same. And that's where we get the, the crab army that moves the boat. There's, again, lots of really, really creative shots in here. And then we cut back, I think we cut back to uh, the pirates who are now on an epic quest to get to get Jack back. Uh, and now we're getting a little bit more of... Um, so this movie has a lot of extra mythology that gets heaped yeah. on top of the mythology already established in the previous film. <laughs> uh, where it turns out that there are like eight pirate lords and Jack was one of them. And each pirate lord has a relic called a piece of eight. Which is something that infuriates me every time they make reference to the nine pieces of eight. Which I guess does kind of get paid off later, but okay. So a piece of eight, a historical piece of eight, was a Spanish dollar, or sometimes referred to as a doubloon. It was a silver coin, but the whole reason it was called a piece of eight is that one side was stamped with a crest, and using that side as a guide, it was really easy to break the coin up into smaller segments, and you could break it up uh, into eight pieces. Uh, this is, in fact, why a quarter is referred to as two bits, because that would be two-eighths of a dollar. How about that? Okay. So anyway, there's your history, but it's just yeah. one of those things whenever they refer to like nine nine pieces of eight, which I guess is just for the sake of the, the play on words. Um, but he didn't pass it along when he got sucked into David Jones's locker, which is part of the reason why they need to rescue him. And we get... Just a lot of cool things of the junk that Barbosa is on, uh, taking them through all these different environments. They they go through glaciers. They go through this really neat starlit sea. Um, but they talk about how they're going to have to go over the edge of the world to find Jack Sparrow. And there's this one great bit where Barbosa is like, oh, well, we're well and truly lost now. It's like, well, what do you mean we're lost? Well, to find the place that don't exist. You know, one's got to be, uh, well, you know, one, one's got to be lost before they can find it. Yeah, some of um, Barbosa's things seem a bit overwritten, or it's like they're trying to sound like riddles for the sake of being obtuse. Well, I think this, this goes to one of the, so this goes to one of the things with, uh, with fantasy in general. Um, fantasy often provides a lot of places to put bad writing because <laughs> because you could yeah. always say well a wizard did that or there's a prophecy and one thing that really does bother me is uh, as as indicated by this film while it is possible to bring someone back from the dead it's not easy uh it, it is quite mm. arduous one pirate even loses a toe to frostbite uh but but at some point I would love to know why Barbosa's back from the dead at all. Yeah, they why, never have a proper like, explanation. It's just because... Like, why did uh, Ty Dalma... Because Ty Dalma presumably is the one who did it. Um, but, yes. But but why? And admittedly, we learn stuff about Ty Dalma later. Um, 
so, so I could assume, oh, well, she predicted the future and knew that she would have to bring someone back from the dead to then later get Jack Sparrow back from the dead so that then later she could have her own curse broken. But then you just have a prophecy that nobody mentions for all intents and purposes. Well, I mean, why not, instead of the second film ending with showing uh, that uh, Barbosa is back from the dead, why not uh, like cut the film slightly uh, before that and then have the third film open with Barbosa's resurrection? Or you have like a little, they have to do like a little quest, kind of like a James Bond pre-credit sequence to bring back Barbosa. Like something. Because he, Barbosa has quite a lot of dialogue in this movie. And like he's, I would argue, almost more of a main character than Jack Sparrow is at this point. Which, frankly, I like because I love Jeffrey Rush. No, no, he's he's excellent. Um, Gee, so I mean, adding on to the mythology, there's nothing in the second film about Calypso, is there? Because that's a huge part of this. One. Yeah, I don't recall, but yeah, there's uh-huh. there's uh, yeah, they, they, there's numerous mentions to a sea goddess named Calypso, and it's eventually revealed that the sea sea goddess the sea goddess Calypso that the pirates to protect themselves from her wrath because you know like like any like any deity of the sea, uh, she is capricious and creates great storms and whatnot. Um, the pirates bound her using the piece using the nine pieces of eight making her making her mortal and in fact Ty Dalma is Calypso in her mortal form um but then it also comes out that we we know that part of the reason J.B. Jones is the way he is is because uh he because he had a falling out with his one true love well his one true love was Calypso and he's the one that told the pirates how to bind her Mm-hmm. So then we get even more. Uh, then we get even more mythology. Then we find out Davy Jones has an actual job. It turns out he's not just this devil of the sea, um, yeah. um, like who's cursed and bargaining with people. He was actually given the job of ferrying the souls of sailors into the next world, but he hasn't been doing that. It, it makes me think of what I like to call the Boba Fett problem. In that a character is much more interesting the less you explain about them in some cases, or it makes them more like cool or interesting because you can kind of think what if, and if everything is explained to you, then it, it kind of takes the winds out from the sails. Uh, it didn't even mean to make that pirate ship pun there, but there you go. Well, I guess it ra- it raises a lot of interesting metaphysical and theological questions that there's this d- demon pirate that ferries the souls of sail- people who died at sea into the next world. Because apparently it's a job that doesn't need to be done because when uh, the pirates are traveling uh, to the edge of the world, we see a lot of people who died at sea <laughs> uh, who are making their own way. Including one of which is Elizabeth, Elizabeth Swan's father, who was murdered off screen, unfortunately. Um, and Although I character. think that helps, though, because it gives his it gives his appearance in the procession of the dead a bit more weight. That's true, and he's uh, that's the character uh, Weatherby Swan, played by Jonathan Price, and he gives a good kind of you know ghostly performance, and uh, so it, I mean that that's really something. Gee, I just thinking back about this film. It's like they packed a trilogy full of plot into one movie. Well, yeah, it's 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 funny you mention that because something that occurred to me is there's enough of a time jump between the second and third film that you could fit a whole movie between the two and maybe set uh-huh. a lot of this stuff up uh, better. So, do you think as was very popular at the time? 
Do you think that they were planning to have a direct-to-DVD animated movie that filled in the gap? Because a lot of movies at the time were <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I don't know, but this was around that time, and I think we mentioned this on a sequel cast too before, but, uh, oh, what was it, Van Helsing had a direct-to-video thing, um, I think Animatrix is what sort of made it popular, although that's more of a bunch of short stories, right? Yeah, Riddick did it too, uh, Charlie's uh, Angels Rid- did it. I didn't know Charlie's Angels did it. The Riddick one I thought was quite good, and we covered, uh, way back on the sequel cast archive. Oh, yeah. Um, speaking of which, we never covered that fourth Riddick movie, huh? No, we, we, we ought to do that as a one-off. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, anyhow, oh, it's neither here nor there. Um, and, we do, and we do, and I guess we, sh- I guess we should mention, the film repeatedly cuts back to the East India Company and Davy Jones and how they have Davy Jones's heart and are exploiting him and using him to attack the East India Company and the British Empire's enemies. Um, one thing that really upset me uh, is okay. that it's so you know you know how awesome the Kraken was in the previous movie. Oh yeah, we're getting none of that in this movie because we find out between the two films, the East India Company had had Davy Jones kill the Kraken. We are denied the opportunity mm. to see that what pre- presumably was a terrifying sea battle. That could All have been we really see. Something. All we see is the Kraken's corpse later washed up on the shore and one line of dialogue establishing how heartbroken Davy Jones is that he had to kill his pet. Well, and it's... It, Davy Jones gets the short shrift in the first half of this film because you, you see him in a few lawn shots on his ship like scampering about, seeing pissed off that he's controlled by the East India Company. Um, but, but later he becomes more important to the plot. And I... I'm usually not one to say this, but they should have broken this out into two movies. It it could have worked. Uh, this I is think one so. of the rare cases yeah. where I think that that may have actually improved the all the films involved. Um, but we, you get a nice scene where, uh, for some reason or another, I don't quite remember. Davy Jones has Calypso uh, in the brig, and then he confronts Calypso, who was his former lover, and she touches him. And for a moment, we see Davy Jones as the actor that plays him, Bill Nye. You know, Nye, I mean. The pirate guy. The the pirate. And it's a really subtle kind of performance of the the love and hatred these two have for each other. Well, like, they, they clearly have such feelings for each other. I really would have loved to have seen the two characters reconciled. I mean, could, could you imagine what an amazing duo an unbound Calypso and Davy Jones would be, like, together on the scene, uh, side by side. Well, the whole unbiting of Calypso um, scene I have an issue with, but I don't think we're quite there, so I'll put a pin in that. Um, I mean, that's what I thought the climax of the film was going to be, mm-hmm. was going to be Davy Jones and Calypso getting revenge on everybody. Yeah, that would have... Instead, you just get a lot of rain, but... Uh, okay, so... <laughs> We get, uh, as you were, we were hinting at before, you get a, a big meetup of all the pirate lords. And there's a big thing about the pirate's cove and these sort of endless boardroom scenes. And yet they're not quite as boring as, like, the Senate scenes in The Phantom Menace, I think just because there is really a lot of thought put into the costumes of these characters. Well, they do, and, and as I understand it, a number of the pirates, the pirate lords, are were based on some historical figures. Oh, really? Uh, in okay. Piracy. Sure. Particularly, um, oh, was it Ma- uh, Madame Madame Yi? Mm-hmm. 
or Madam uh, Madam 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 Fang. Uh, I don't. I, I'm really sorry. I can't. I'm looking at the character list and I can't find. I can't find her name on it. But she she was based on an actual like Chinese pirate who was quite uh, quite notorious. Uh, and and managed a sizable fleet uh, back in the day, so that was fun. I mean, I love I love all the the I love all the the fun affectations and personality traits all these pirates get. I love that the Turkish pirate uh, never speaks. It's just he, he had like one of the guys on either side of him says all of his lines for him. But then um, there's a joke when he finally does speak. He sounds like Mickey Mouse. Yeah, that I, I kind of wasn't kinda, satisfied with. Kind of lame, and I. It struck me as vaguely racist for some reason or another. I'm not sure why. But well, I don't just... know. I don't know if it's it's. It, I don't know if it's 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 racist or not. I mean, I, I presumably it could be. There are there are things that I will freely admit I may not be sensitive to, but it's it's. I think it's cooler when his cronies do his speaking for him. And yeah, don't yeah, know it gives him more power. Finding out um, why collapses the mystery. Yeah, and just it, 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 it just seems like a lame joke. It feels like a joke for small children, which, I mean, granted, this is a, unless we forget, this is a movie series based on a theme park ride. Uh, yeah, and I also but, want to point out, pirates, as as free men and women of the seas, uh, they do sure love their rules and bureaucracy. Yeah, and... Like, you, it would be one thing if the pirate's code was just a code of honor, but no, it turns out the pirate's code is flat out a massive book of law written generations before. And at some point earlier on, or earlier in the film, um, Chow Yun Fat dies much too early for my liking in the movie, and he uh, says Elizabeth Swan is his successor. So she is one of the pirate lords, and they have to vote on who is going to be the the, the new pirate king. The, the new pirate king, and Jack Sparrow. Uh, and uh, I think this is kind of a funny bit of business because every pirate votes for themselves. They've never had a pirate king in quite some time. Um, I think since the formation of the the pirate lords, but Jack Jack votes for Elizabeth, tipping the scales two to one to one to one to one to whatever you know in her favor, which is kind of interesting. And I love yeah, I love yeah. seeing Elizabeth Swan kind of thrust into this into increasingly more powerful command roles and really rising to the challenge. So I like that about and, her character. And Kara Knightley is a, is quite a good actor. And, and think of um, the character arc, whether intended or not, from what it was in that first film. Where it's like, oh damn, my corset's too tight. To you know, she's like giving an impassioned speech on the bow of the ship uh, before the big action sequence. Um, it, it's the kind of stuff. moment I wish yeah. Emily Portman as Princess Amidala had had in the prequels. Natalie Portman, yeah, that that really would have been instead of these weird, you know, these kind of brief lines where it's like, "We must have a vote of no confidence." This is a war, Senator. We must go to war. Uh, yeah, these um, sort of flat line reading. Although Kira Knightley wasn't Phantom Menace, she was <laughs> one of the uh, I think either the decoy or the handmaiden or, some, or something. I think I think they, the, all the decoys were handmaidens, but yes. No, okay, right. She's one of the decoys, and I don't know if she looks she looks a little bit like Natalie Portman, but I think especially at that age when they were younger, they looked more similar. So, so with the whole pirate court, I think we, I think we need to bring up the the film's biggest sustained cameo, which is Keith Richards uh, as Edward God. Teague, who is also yeah. presumably Jack Sparrow's father. Uh, yep. And the reason for this cameo is in interviews for the original film, Johnny Depp said one of his chief inspirations for his performance as Jack Sparrow was Keith Richards. 
And you can certainly see that in his performance. And it is, it's, it is fascinating seeing Keith Richards in this movie because I'm not sure he's ever appeared in a film before. In fact, I might even look that up right now. If, now if he had, it's probably just it. been a concert film or maybe a cameo in Miami Vice or something. But yeah, it's it, it's really. But it, it, what surprised me is his acting isn't terrible. Well, I think I think what it is is he's Keith Richards and he doesn't give a fuck. So I'm yeah. sure he's just reading his <laughs> lines flatly, but flat for Keith Richards is overflowing with personality. I, I, I think you're right. And, and they dress him up in the costume really good, and it, it's a good bit of makeup and, and stuff. And, I mean, Keith Richards, why the hell he's alive and people like Keith Moon are dead, I, I'll never understand. With the amount of drugs all those uh, musicians did um, <laughs> in, in their heyday. But I just think it's nice that we have like a craggly rock and roll god still among us. Mm-hmm. But yeah, looking looking through this, it looks like the uh, Keith Richards. The only other things Keith Richard has ever appeared in are concert videos and mm-hmm. the Beatles' "A Day in the Life." Oh, is that that recent Beatles documentary on Hulu? Uh, no, this was. Oh. Uh, oh, looks like this was actually a, it was a music video package. That the Beatles had released in the '60s to help promote their 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 stuff. So it looks like he just he's in frame uh, at some point. That sounds like a bit of a rarity. He wasn't in the Rudels, was he? Uh, no, I don't believe oh, so. Yeah, I see. Okay, which has a sequel. But that's neither here nor there. Yeah. But, um, so yeah, he's so good yeah. in this. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind seeing him crop up again in something. If you just need a craggly old guy who oozes sex, you just get Keith Richards in front of that camera. Um, I believe he's in one of the movies after this one, but we'll have to see. It's been a while. Uh, but yeah, so that that's a big deal. And he is his father. There isn't. It, they do have a line, a, a sort of a brief scene between Jack Sparrow and Keith Richards, and um, there's there's a, a joke that sort of works where Jack is asking his father, "How's Mum doing?" And he's like, "Oh, she's doing okay." And he brings up a shrunken head. <laughs> Oh yeah, there's there's clearly some history there, and you know I I have to say, this film has a lot of restraint having Keith Richards because I kept waiting for a groan worthy wink at the camera. I kept waiting for him or Jack Sparrow to talk about getting satisfaction or uh, or uh, I heard we're gonna raid to get some rubies. Yeah, we're gonna raid for rubies Tuesday or something like that. Hmm. But that didn't happen. I was so happy that that didn't happen. I bet they were tempted, though. Like, do you think maybe he came on set and was pitching him lines like, I think the pirate should say, Satisfaction, I ain't got none of it. <laughs> Wild horses couldn't take me away from this ship. <laughs> um, now, now I just want, like, a spoken word album of um, Keith Richards doing, you know, pirate chanties. Throw <laughs> <laughs> the man down, matey. Oh, that would be fun. I don't think you do. Oh, jeez. But yeah, so so all the parts are in place for a massive showdown because after there's a whole network of back and forth betrayals and one-upmanships between the East India Company, Will Turner, and Jack Sparrow, all trying to double cross, triple cross, quintuple cross, what have you, each other. Uh, that finally leads to an epic showdown between the assembled pirate fleet, the entire East India Company, uh, and. Uh, and uh, Davy Jones and the Flying Dutchman. 
And you could have seen that straight out of a western, and even it's this uh, the musical sting even sounds a bit like a Sergio Leone thing. Oh yeah, where, where they attempt to uh, bargain on the with each other on this little strip of sand. And okay, so this is this is something that that kind of infuriates me. Um, it del- it delighted me at first, and then infuriated me later. Uh, that so as as it's established, Davy Jones can only walk on dry land once every one day out of every ten years. Uh, but he has to be there for this bargaining session. So what do they do? Everyone's lined up in the sandbar. Davy Jones is standing in a bucket, and there's a series of buckets behind him, all full of seawater. And that's his their cheat to get him on land. I kept waiting for that to like to come back again because of something that happens later in this film that gives a perfect out to his whole curse. Uh, but that 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 never comes back, and that's what really bothers me. Or maybe a character could have tried shooting the bucket, destroying it, and he would have had to like scuttle back to the ship, <laughs> like Zoidberg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, of course the negotiations come to nothing. Uh, no one's gonna. Everyone wants to claim the black pearl for themselves. Right, and uh, what at this? I mean, but at that meeting, they have Orlando Bloom is on the because he's doing work for the East India Company. And then they negotiate for him to be traded for Jack. Yeah, there's a lot of people getting traded uh, between factions mm-hmm. and the magic compass passing between a lot of different hands. Gee, to the point where I think it's done one a few too many times. It gets a bit... Oh, and one but, thing I forgot to mention, part of the way the, the East India Company finds the gathering of the Pirate Lords is that Will Turner has been strapping corpses to barrels and throwing them overboard, and they're just following the seagulls who come to feast on the corpses, uh, who, I guess the sea, uh, like, yeah, b- minor biological ornithological quibble, but I don't think the seagulls would be that far out to sea, but it's a great scene. It's very effective. Although, I guess that presumes, so is Will just killing off pirates one by one to have corpses to leave his trail? Yep. Sure seems like that, it. That's pretty fucked up. It is, but this is a movie in which you had children being hunted at. Um, yeah, so. but he's presumably one of our heroes. But he's a pirate. Well, yeah, that's that's true. That's one thing that, that none of these movies ever, ever reconcile with, is that in the end, part of the pirate job description is killing people and taking their stuff. Yep. I'm always... Uh, I, I think they, they, they've changed this in some of the revisions to the ride, but um, if you listen and, and read all the little blocks of text on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. It talks about that uh, the pirates are raping women, but it's okay because they're just old maids. Like, is, is in such indelicate language, really, that's in the ride? Um, I don't think it uses the word rape, but it hints at that. I'll have to, I'll have to look that up specifically, but it, it's something like when the ride was, you know, came out, it was a different time, but it, it's... It's something that has struck me as odd. Well, I mean, that's the whole implication of the wench auction, uh, which mm-hmm. I've, I've heard might not be in the ride anymore. I've never actually been on it. I've only seen the ride in documentary footage, so I have no idea what it's actually like. I was on a ride on the ride as a child in the late '80s. I understand they do some as a, as our guest Eric McEver. Um, he was back on the the show we did for the um, first Pirates movie. Huge Pirates fan and movie director. Um, he was saying that. They've added, um, I think, the Johnny Depp and Jeffrey Rush characters, but he said they've done so tastefully. So, yeah, I'd be very curious to um, to do all that. 
Um, so we need to talk about the unbinding of Calypso, which happens. God, I have so, such yeah. problems with this. Yeah. Okay. So, so this is so this is one of the things. So we keep we've talked about the nine pieces of eight. I've given you mm-hmm. some historical background on the historical pieces of eight. But you come to find out the original, the reason they're called the pieces of eight is the original plan was to use the Spanish coins, but they didn't have any on them at the time, so they just each had a thing. Um, and so it's all random objects. There's like a, a whale's tooth. There's one yeah. of Jack's pieces of jewelry, the one that hangs off his bandana. Uh, there, and this is what I thought was really cool: the wooden eye. Ah, uh, yeah. Of, the um, wooden eye that's been showing up in all these movies is one of the pieces of eight, and I rather liked that. I, I can't remember the character's name, but it's the actor who uh, was from, from the, the Office version of the Office. Yeah, and. Yeah, uh, and- and the whole ritual is you have to burn you have to burn the pieces of eight while saying like Calypso, goddess of the sea, I release you, but you have to say it like you'd say it to a lover. I think this was a nice moment. I, I don't mind this part because um you you have all this going on and uh, Jeffrey Rush does it, but it's not it's not convincing at all. He just does it in his over the top pirate voice and they make a point, oh, and then it's a good moment for Mackenzie Crook, who's that actor we mentioned with the wooden eye in the film. And he does, he actually does a great job of delivering the line in a real heartfelt way. And this is a character who's been subject to the stupidest gags throughout the entire series. And <laughs> yeah, that, like this, this moment is very nice. No, it, it's a good, it's it's good that he gets the moment, but also like the way, the way he says the line, it does sound like somebody who is fumblingly trying to confess their love to somebody. It's very endearingly awkward and vulnerable the way he says it, and it's not yeah, like it it's like not like erotic, which is what I was expecting. Yeah, not not breathy. Uh, it, yeah, it's a bit fumbly. But then, so uh, this kicks off the thing, and we get this, I think, really cheesy-looking special effect of Calypso become it looks like a giant. Yeah, she she grows, breaks her bonds, and then explodes. It ex- explodes into a whole bunch of crabs, which flee into the ocean. Um, and then later turns into a living storm. But I didn't mind the effect of her growing. There were some neat camera angles to kind of exaggerate her height, which I felt helped. The one thing I didn't like is that when she grows to giant size, her voice is so deep I can't understand anything she's saying. Mm. I, I just think she looked really pasted onto the scenery. It just looked especially... Uh, green screening, and I do I understand they use a lot of special effects in these pictures. I'm not an idiot, but it, it's just uh, that that effect didn't quite work for me. And then when you know they the idea is the pirates uh, from all the different countries and cultures and, and so forth parts of the world are uniting together to fight against the East India Company, who is trying to stamp them all out. Yep. And you have uh, Calypso is going to help. Uh, ideally help them with it, but it's still a kind of a risk, which I thought was interesting, because she's this powerful sea goddess thing. And I kind of wish she had a more active part in the battle, but she just makes it rain a lot, and has a lot of big waves. It's not... I expected some, like, quasi-cosmic... Uh, I wanted to think, I wanted to be blown away, and I wasn't. Well, I think I think what it is is I... I it... When when we learn that she's turned herself into a living storm, I'm like, oh, she's just going to go after everybody and level the playing yeah, field. Yeah, yeah. But she doesn't. The, the wind and rain and everything is not a threat to any of the ships whatsoever. Um, it's just used to make the final set piece, which is a massive whirlpool with the pirates on one side and the Flying Dutchman on the other just sort of shooting at each other as they circle the drain. 
Uh, and yet the sequence might have one of my favorite shots in the entire series. I'll, I'll know more once we finish the series, because I don't think I've seen the fifth one yet. Um, but you have the East India Company ship being ravaged, and I think it's Lord Beckett is walking down the steps as the ship is being shattered around him. It's, it is a very... It is an overindulgent scene. It is pornographic oh, yeah. in its use of slow-mo and digital mm-hmm. enhancements to make it uh, effective. And yet, it, it, is, it is gorgeous. Um, I think it might be better as a way to do a music video rather than as a <laughs> character death in this movie. I, th- I think, I think my, my only flaw thing that I didn't like about that scene is it just ran a bit too long. Yeah, it, it's 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 sort of like uh, someone is just like you're at a party and then for no reason someone unzips his pants and and says look at my dick and whips it out. It's just like so out there on the table. Look at our special effects. Yeah, and and we do and uh, one thing that I do like though as as this crazy over the top pirate battle is happening is that uh, Will Turner and Elizabeth Swan decide to get married. And yes, they and they d- propose as they're battling off uh, the bad guys. And they and they do their vows and Barbarossa and as a captain, as we all know, captains can officiate marriages. So Barbosa Barbosa is doing the is doing the role of the priest in the marriage ceremony as all this action is going on. This is this is one of those scenes that sort of harkened back to the sense of playful adventure in the first movie. So I, I really found it endearing. Yeah, and he's trying to say you may kiss the bride, and the keeper being interrupted is more. Uh, enemies are popping on the ship and at the end he's like ah oh, just kiss her <laughs> and this so this is something that that gets laid in kind of early on that I'm surprised we haven't mentioned and this is goes with the additional mythology for Davy Jones is it turns out the flying dutchman must always have a ship and if you kill Davy Jones or I guess specifically kill Davy Jones by stabbing his heart Hired you then have chest. to take his place as captain yes and and Jack wants to do this to become immortal um Mm-hmm. But in the in the end, uh, Will Turner gets fatally injured, uh, and what they end up doing is they put a sword in Will Turner's hand and use Will Turner's hand to stab the heart. So Will Turner becomes immortal, and the new captain of the Flying Dutch of the Flying Dutchman. Which, on the one on the one hand, it yes, it does it does save his life. On the other hand, you are cursing him without his like he didn't get any he didn't get any say in this. Uh, he's a completely passive actor in becoming the new captain of the Flying Dutchman. Um, but although at the same time, as it is sort of a cursed state, I suppose it is a, an appropriate comeuppance for all the awful stuff he's done in this movie, all the betrayals, the killing of pirates to make the trail of corpses and things like that. But it's played as if they're saving his life, not that they're giving him an ironic punishment. What bothered me is when he takes over Davy Jones's spot, I was hoping for, ooh, is he going to be, like, part tentacly? Is he going to have, like, shit in his face? And he doesn't. And I'm like, eh. Well, we come, to, we come to find out that apparently Davy Jones gets to control what he looks like and also what his crew looks like. I see. So, Will Turner, being a decent person, being not a monster, just doesn't make anyone monsters. So, all the Flying Dutchman crew become humanoid again. Including and his father. Jones, Davy Jones kind of doesn't get a good death scene. Like, he just falls no, over yeah. and dies. You're right. It's uh, like it, it's too I, bad. I kind of wanted like Calypso to rise out of the ocean and take him in his arm. Like I wanted him to die in mm. her arms. I, I I really wanted that image, but I didn't get it. And you, but uh, but when he restores the chooses to restore the humanity to the the crew, 
uh, the ship. Uh, one of them, of course, is his father. And as in one of the movie's many sort of ending scenes, it feels a bit like Return of the King in that in that matter. Um, you get a, a, a nice, if short, uh, character moment between Will Turner and his father, Bootstrap Bill. And Boots and Bill is offering to be like his first mate in the ship. Yeah, because like Will has Will has like apparently released uh, his father and maybe even the entire crew from their from their bond to the ship. Um, but they don't want to leave, and Bootstrap Bill's like, "Oh, I know, I know, you know, I'm no longer bound, but I still owe you. You know, I want to, I want to, uh, I want to serve on this vessel." And it's kind of neat. I like, I like seeing, I like seeing father and son reunited in that way. And you just get that great, that great exchange. You know, all, all speed ahead, uh, Mister Turner. Aye, aye, Captain Turner. Like this, this, there's, there's something nice. I like that father and son reconciliation. What about the wrapping up of uh, Jack Sparrow? Ah, uh, it go well. It goes on a bit too long, um, but it's it it go it goes on a bit too long because we um the pirates like they want to now they they still have the magic map that led them to World's End, which I can't believe we didn't even talk about the map where you rotate the sections and it gives you cryptic clues. Um, mm-hmm. They they unroll the map like they're gonna find some of the world's greatest treasures, but circular part that moves has been cut out of it. Um, turns out Jack has it, but. The uh, they stole the black pearl once again. Jack's left on dry land with two prostitutes. Um, he then takes a rowboat and sails off, you know, into the horizon to uh, while singing to himself the song from the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. And he pulls out the circular section and starts moving it around uh, and finds a crypt. And it's not even a cryptic clue. It's just like the Fountain of Youth, and it shows him a map to Florida. And he decides he's going to go there, and that's where he's going to find his immortality. And that. That's such overtly sequel baiting setup that it really turned me off. I think it would have been better. I think mm. it would have been better if we saw him messing with the map, but we didn't see what he saw. We just saw him get really excited and unfurl the sails. But th- as it sets up a sequel, and that it is the sequel we get many years later, it really turned me off. Yes, as, as it turns out. Uh, and uh, did you catch the scene uh, sort of midway through the credits? No, oh, no, I well, didn't. This one is is. It, I'd hasten to say I don't know if it's important, but it's an interesting note. It wraps up the Will Turner stuff. So they mentioned, you know, there's the curse. He can only be on land every ten years, and so it says like ten years later, and um, Orlando Bloom goes to shore to meet with Kira Knightley and their ten year old son. Oh, that's sweet. I wish I had yeah. seen that. Because, uh, it, because it, it's a weirdly important scene to stick as a what they call a credit cookie. Hmm. Well, yeah, cause actually, because we didn't even mention because one of the many endings is um, is Will Turner having his last day ashore with Kira Knightley, and it's very sweet. It's also very sexually charged. I but, laugh my ass off when it plays like a rousing pirate theme as it does an extreme close up of Kira Knightley's thigh. Oh yeah, and he gets and he gets all up on that thigh. Uh, but like the, the music is a bit um, pompous, but that's it's fine. It's... But, but this this is when the whole bucket thing bothered me because they talk about how they won't be able to like won't be able to see each other uh, for ten years. Well, no, that's not the case for two reasons. One, they can still meet at sea. She's still a pirate captain, presumably. Um, mm-hmm. But two, why can't they carry a bucket ashore and just have bath days with him in a bucket? 
Right. Like, um, we've already it... seen that there is a loophole that can still get you on dry land. In the postscript scene, uh, it's worth mentioning that um, William Turner uh, still looks fully human. He does not have any um, ocean accoutrement on his face. Yeah, he just has the scar where they cut his heart out, the heart which he gave to Kira Knightley to keep safe, which is pretty cool. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so that is... We had quite a long discussion in this film, but I think the, the film mentioned it. There's so much going on. It, it's uh, stuffed. It is very stuffed. It, it, it is. It's a... It, it's not just a baked potato. It's, ba- it's a baked potato with cheese, bacon, sour cream, chives, butter, and um, whatever else goes on a packed baked potato of a movie. Uh, so, um... I give the Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End a sequel. Yes, I think I think you could even watch this movie without watching Dead Man's Chest, and you'd be okay. Um, I it, hmm? go on. Oh well, I I, I really enjoyed this movie, uh, and th- this is going to be such a confusing rating. I'm giving this movie a sequel. No, because I was so I enjoyed this movie so much. This movie. I satisfyingly wraps up a decent enough trilogy of films. It wraps it up so well. I don't want to see any more. I just want it to end here. Mm. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to give it a protective but positive sequel. No, I feel I like go, I, I'm re- I feel like going forward from this, you're only going to get sequel itis, and you're only going to get the unraveling of previously satisfying. Uh, uh, arc conclusions. We'll just have to see in the next few shows. Um, so, uh, for Pitch a Sequel, I had something in mind. Yep. Yeah, so you'd, we had the um, the Pirate Lords, and I, I would do a, a spinoff on one of the Pirate Lords, and it would be the, the Pirate Lord that is the Penniless Frenchman. Oh, yeah. And we would see um, he would be going on a, a quest to um, he's on a mission from the, the King of France and to get his record, uh, his legal record, expunged and to get some heat off him, <laughs> he has to find the uh, the best wine and cheese in the world to bring back <laughs> to the King of France. So one then, of the Louis, uh, presumably? Yeah, one of the Louis, of course. Uh, King Louis Louis, in fact. And they <laughs> will go and... Um, and so it's, it's sort of... Uh, he has a lot of uh, picaresque adventures going around the world finding these things and um, in an ironic ending he ends up being stranded at sea all alone his his own crew uh, mutinies and to survive he has to eat the very cheese and wine he was sent to save <laughs> there'll be a post credit stinger where we see him dragged in front of the king of France and he's like I can assure uh-huh. you it truly was the finest cheese on the line and then he says I shall give it to you the only way I know how and then he starts to vomit as we cut back to credits oh I say that's an amazing amount of restraint I thought you said he was going to defecate and then a wizard was going to make it disappear you know I was thinking he was going to shit <laughs> But then I, I said, "Oh, vomiting might be is usually funnier than shitting." Uh, you know that mind. that's that's true. Although they can have a, a, a the kid from History of the World Part One uh, run up with the bucket. Piss boy. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Um, very good. All right. So, what's your pitch a sequel? So, so my pitch a is going to be um, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean: Hell Hath No Fury, uh, and the premise is going to be. 
Um, because of all the supernatural stuff that happened at the end of this movie, particularly the the Flying Dutchman having not done its duty ferrying the souls of the dead, uh, and the transition of power between Davy Jones and Will Turner as captain, um, we're going to find out that in that moment... Uh, the gates of hell were able to open and the ghosts of all of the world's worst pirates escaped from hell. Uh, And they don't want to go back. Uh, Would these be historical pirates? I think a lot lot of them would be. Uh, Although I would actually love it if it turns out the captain they're serving under is in fact the devil. Uh, And what what they're doing is gathering... They're essentially... They're, they want they want to plunder the greatest treasure of all. So all the ghost pirates are like doing everything they can to get other pirates to sell their souls to the devil, so that the devil can have a pirate army and can plunder heaven. Uh, that's that's going to be the crazy ass thing that's going on. But also, a lot of those pirates have a grudge against Jack Sparrow because a lot of them got killed because of Jack Sparrow's betrayal. Um, so Jack Sparrow, so Jack Sparrow uh, and a uh, guardian angel will have uh, the thankless task of trying to stop the devil and his band of escaped ghost pirates from assaulting the gates of heaven. And how can they uh, damage these ghost pirates? Well, what uh, what's going to end up happening is that at the at the end, he's able to find uh, Elizabeth Swan who uses the heart to call uh, Will Turner, and so the Flying Dutchman joins the final battle, and the Flying Dutchman has the power to drag all the other pirates back down to hell. And what would you call it? Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Hell Hath No Fury. Mm. Oh, and the Devil's a Woman, too. I see. Mine would would be called Pirates of the Caribbean, The Penniless Frenchman. I feel like like we really need a female antagonist in one of these movies. Uh, Yeah, it's a bit surprising... That um, none of the films have a female protagonist, yeah. and if it clear and if it clears up the metaphysics of it, well, maybe maybe the woman's actually the devil's daughter. There you go. Which gives which gives us some personal stakes. What she's doing is so she can get her father released from hell. He's the one person who can't escape. So yeah, okay, I'll do that. That's what we'll do. It's called character motivation. Um, <laughs> all right, well, I believe you have a question for me, Thrasher. Uh, yes, uh, and that question is, have you seen this boy? That's a horrible Terminator 2 impression. Anyway, no, the real question is what you're watching. Um, I, I went to the movies and I saw a trailer that looked pretty good for... Just a trailer, though. Well, um, it, it, this is leading to what I watched, but, um, a trailer for an M. Night Shyamalan film, um... I can't remember the title. Glass? Glass, thank you. That is his, his sort of capper for his superhero trilogy of sorts. So because <laughs> it had been a long time since I've seen it, uh, Ivana and I sat down and watched Unbreakable, which I You know, I seen. recently saw that too. Did you? Okay. So maybe you have a thought about it. Or maybe, I won't say too much because this is something we could do for the show potentially. But um, I liked it much more uh, watching it as an adult than as a teenager. Huh. It It, it is very deliberately paced it's kind of slow and i think the ending doesn't quite work but um in particular samuel l jackson seems to be relishing his role with every line it's a lot of fun to see him work uh in that movie and it it should be noted at that time that movie came out which was maybe 2000 2001 something like that superhero movies were still kind of a curio 
in theaters. You only really had Batman. And even beyond that, uh, nothing about any of the trailers or promotional materials for Unbreakable said it was a superhero movie. The right. whole reason, the whole reason I even saw it is because of uh, a very good friend of mine, uh, Cliff Long, had had said, "Will, have you seen Glass? No. Okay, you've got to see Glass. As someone who reads a lot of comic books, I think you're really going to like this movie." So I went into it not knowing it involved superheroes in any way. So I was I was delighted and very surprised. Yeah, I have yet to see um, the second one, Split. And unfortunately, as movie studios have tended to do lately, I don't know if you've noticed this. Do you ever do the rentals online for through like Amazon or Apple or? On rare occasion, yes. Yeah. Okay. So lately, if there's like a, a movie that's before, you know, that's in a series that's. In this case, you know, Split takes place before uh, Glass. Um, you, they will make it so you cannot rent that movie digitally, and you can only buy it, which is ridiculous. Oh, I hate that. And so now, like, because there's really no physical in Portland, Oregon, we have one, I think, but um, there's really no physical movie rental stores. Rent boxes, uh, as convenient as they are. Don't have anything old. Don't have anything beyond like six months old, really. Mm, um, yeah. So you have to go if you really want to watch a movie. You either you can choose to pirate it, or you can go to a used movie store and pick up something for like a few bucks, which I, I usually do. But to have to do that is annoying. It's money on the table. So you I have to wonder, people, on the subject of Redbox, when yes. a movie leaves circulation on Redbox, do you think they just like sell it and, and flip it over into the used DVD market, or do you think they destroy their old inventory? A lot of their old inventory, they just sell through their machines. You can buy used movies and video games through the Redbox machines. Oh, okay. It, it's just, and sometimes for quite a good deal. I mean, I uh, for our library, I picked up uh, Escape Room 1 and 2 for like $4 for both of them. Um, sometimes you can get a good deal, but they might destroy some of their inventory. Another thing uh, is some of the studios, um, in particular Disney, I think, still make rental-specific versions for the Redbox market that do not have special features on them. Hmm. But not all of them do, so... Strange. Um, but they might destroy some of their inventory in the end, or they might sell it to a, a third party for pennies in the dollar. I don't know. Um, anyhow, yeah, Unbreakable. Uh, I, I don't know if I'd recommend it, but it, it's something I think that if you're in for like kind of a slower drama that has to do with comic books... Uh, the way the movie opens with the quote of, like, the average comic collector owns 300,000 comics. I, I saw that, and I thought, that number seems a bit high. Well, how are they defining collector? Are they talking yeah, about yeah, people yeah. who, like, right. have... Because I've got a... I certainly have a comic collection. Though I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider myself a collector. There's really only one series I truly collect, and that's the old Marvel Doctor Who reprints. Um, so I'm wondering how they define that term. <laughs> Also, it made me think, well, you know, nowadays, if uh, I find, you know, if you really like Marvel stuff, Marvel Unlimited for uh, however much it is a month is a pretty good deal because you have access to, like, I think it's almost like a million comics or something. It's something ridiculous. Well, you ha you have access to, like, their all the old stuff going back to the beginning. So there, there's... Close if to you... it. They, they admit they make some weird omissions, like the shitty Punisher uh, comics from the late 90s where he was an avenging angel. Um but you're right. Yeah, for the most part, they even have stuff like from the 30s. It's so like, would you call that a comic collection? Oh, I have. 
Well, you don't own it. You're you're yeah, renting true. access to it. So no. yes, you're you're paying for. Anyhow, um, long story short, Unbreakable. It's okay. I if 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 you like M Night Shyamalan and stuff, you could do worse. Uh, I wasn't blown away by it, but I liked Samuel L. Jackson's performance. Well, uh, you know, it it was before Split. I think this really was the last height of his career. That's a good point, yeah, because he he's a fascinating uh, director to follow his career. Because, um, yeah, because he did Sixth Sense, which was not his first movie, but they marketed it like it was his first movie. And, and that um, really came to define his career. Yeah, you know, and uh, it's, I mean, what a burden to put in a director. Like, they were calling him the next, the next Hitchcock. It's almost like they're setting you up for failure at that point. Hmm. And, and... Uh, even though it was, I think, his fourth film, technically, uh, Unbreakable was considered a sophomore slump. Which is because it because it did well, and it certainly didn't attract the it, it didn't attract the negative response of the Village in some of his later films. But it did not do six cents money. Well, true, true. <laughs> All right, Thrasher, what have you been watching? So, I'm going to talk about I what I watched. I watched. In preparation for our other podcast, uh, In Trouble Again, a Star Wars droids podcast. However, uh, I've decided I'm not going to bring it up on that show. Uh, I'd rather talk about it here just because of the nature of the conversation. So uh, I reached back into the archives and tried to watch the complete first and only season of The Mighty Orbots, which was an uh, an obscure... Uh, early 1980s, I think a ni- yeah a 1984 uh, animated series, which really has everything I loved from that period, namely robots. <laughs> is and, it a is it a meant to be a Transformers knockoff or? It kind of is. It yeah. has an interesting production history, but the sh- the short version um, is that. Uh, Fred Silverman, who's an American uh, animation producer who had a hand yep. in a lot of in a lot of things in the eighties, he kind of decided, well, you know, kids love superhero adventures, kids love robots, uh, investors love toy lines, uh, <laughs> and Japan's doing some really interesting things in animation, and most of the stuff ends up animated overseas anyway. Let's just cut the middleman. And do a sci-fi adventure series that's an American-Japanese co-production. Um, oh, wow. And he also did the budget and realized that for the same amount of money that you could use to make a first-run syndication package of, like, 50-plus episodes, mm-hmm. you could instead produce a really well-animated 13-episode season. So that's huh. what he did. He created The Mighty Orbots, which uh, takes place in the future – and it's about this superhero team composed entirely of robots under the command of their human inventor. Uh, and each robot has different gimmicks, different personality traits, different powers, but then they can all combine into a giant robot called the Orbot uh, and defeat villains. And it really, it's this amazing East-West hybrid because it looks like it looks like anime. It is anime straight up and down as far as the aesthetics are concerned. Uh, it is directed, it is all uh it is all directed and animated uh, by uh, by people uh, in Japan. 
uh, and that really carries over. And the animation is very often feature film quality. Wow. Uh, it is on par with stuff that was being released to theaters in Japan at the time. But the writing and the voice acting is all straight up American. And like a lot of the people who worked on the series were holdovers from old Hanna-Barbera cartoons. So it has very similar gag based humor and half the character voices are just celebrity impersonations rolled over into new characters. <sighs> like one, well, like one of the main uh, Bort, one of the main robots, his voice is Lou Costello. All right, and the same thing, and the same thing goes for the villains, and, and the one, and it's and strangely enough, despite dis, but but it has inherited the flaws of both those mediums. It has all the flaws of a Hanna Barbera series, and it has all the flaws of an anime transforming robot series. Um, and so, while the series holds up, I find a lot better than a lot of stuff at the time. I mean, I frankly think this series comes off better than Transformers does. Mm. Um, it's hard to find. It was re-released through Warner Archives. I have not been able to track down one of those DVDs. Um, and so some of the representations of the show online are of very poor quality, uh, particularly the audio. But this was a really fascinating fascinating to revisit this series. So it's the Orbots. Uh, do they have a... Does it have a good theme song? That's all I care about. You know it does. The theme song okay. is not expository, which is amazing. They just look for huh. every excuse to go, Go, mighty Orbots! Although there is the middle eight break of the song, they do just list the names of all the robots. Well, that's almost a given in a cartoon theme song, but it's, I guess. But the naming is so awkwardly timed to the music, I feel like that must have been added. Some executive must have said, you gotta name the characters. And uh, I assume it did have a toy line, yes? That's why we didn't. That's why we didn't get a second season. It took too long to get the prototypes for the toys made, so the show got canceled before the product line ever officially launched. Uh, hmm. You can find pictures of the prototypes, and this is one of the downsides to the high quality Japanese animation. The character designs are so intricate and their transformations so strange that you can tell that they really struggled to make toys that both looked like the characters, but could also transform into the parts of the Mighty Orbots. Yeah, speaking of toys for a moment, they're, uh, did you hear they're doing a season three of The Toys That Made Us on Netflix? Oh, good. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, I, I believe they're going to have a Ninja Turtles episode, and they're going to have one on the WWF uh, wrestling toys. Cool. Um, cool. Maybe even Ghostbusters. I think that'd be a good one, too. Uh, I don't know. But uh, anyhow... Well, neat. Well, Orbots, I've never even heard of that before, so thanks for bringing that to my attention. I might catch a clip of that, see what yeah, that's Because like. it only had 13 episodes and only had the one season, yeah, it, it is an obscurity, but I, uh, I'm i going to try, just for my own sake, to get a copy of the Warner Archive DVD box set, because I would love to watch a higher quality version of this and, and, really, and, and, and really give it a good critical assessment. Yeah, no, I, I um, although I don't own any discs from Warner Archive, I love what they're doing. I think that print-on-demand is such a smart model for a lot of these cult, uh, you know, films and TV series and so forth. Oh, but hey, if I, you're a, cl a classic pop culture addict, uh, it's narrated by Gary Owens. Ah, of uh, Space Quest fame. Well, yeah. he did more than Space Quest, but... Well, the, he, he did a lot. He was also uh, honorary mayor of Hollywood, California. Yes, uh... I cannot do a Gary Owens impersonation. I can do Don Pardo, but it's not the same thing. <laughs> we'll do a comedy sketch one day where, where, where I'm Gary Owens and you're Don Pardo. 
It's the Orbots. <laughs> Starring Bort. And his brother, Wart. Okay, anyway. Musical guests, Salt and Pepper. The Foo Fighters. Oh, actually, this is available um, on uh, YouTube. So, Mighty Orbots wasn't the original title of the show. The original title that it was developed under was Brutes, which I presume was going to be like an acronym for something. Um, but on YouTube, there's the test animation for the Brutes sizzle Ooh. reel that they shopped yeah. around at the time. Uh, and it has Gary Owens in his best announcer voice describing all the characters as they come on screen and it has like what is currently one of my favorite cheesy narration turns of phrase where the robot uh Bo is described as the sultry siren who heats up any environ <laughs> that's pretty good yeah <laughs> I'll have to use that as a could be a good pickup line I suppose um, or, or something yeah or something on a dating profile uh okay so, very good. Well, this was a uh, we we have the sequel scene to do. So uh, let's get to it. What uh, character do you want to do? This is a scene between uh, Sparrow and Beckett. Uh, I I would like to go back to doing a Sparrow because I like your British okay. accent. I'll be. Did you say you like my British accent? No, it it delights me because it's awful. <laughs> yes, but it's so quintessentially you, and and you're uh, and, very like, good. That's that's what I love about it. Okay. Um, and this is the scene where um, Sparrow is in Beckett's uh, uh, office aboard the uh, the East India Company's flagship, and they're trying to do their whole their whole bargain dealy to find the uh, the Brethren Court of the Pirates. Very good. All right. So you done? Done. Although if I kill you, then I can use the compass to find my way to Shipwreck Cove. Captain Beckett raises his gun. Cut out the middleman, as it were. Ah, but without me, you'd arrive at a cove to find it a fortress not impregnable, able to withstand the blockade for years. You'll be wishing, oh, if only there was someone I hadn't killed inside to make sure the pirates came outside. And you can do this. Well, you may kill me, but you can never insult me. Who am I? Brett falters, confused. I'm Captain Jack Sparrow. Ah, uh, yes. Which is actually, I kind of like that exchange where it sounds like he's asking a riddle, but he just wants to hear his own name. I kind of wish they made that a runner for his character, where he says things that sound like riddles, but he's just trying to get people to name drop him. And at World's End, there are far too many scenes that end with characters grabbing a rope and then doing something to, like, launch them high into the air. Oh, yeah, which they get a lot of mileage out of in this movie. Even to the point where they, they have kind of like a um, makeshift parachute thing. Characters are floating around. But I gotta show restraint. They don't fully in the Tarzan yell uh, during any of that. No, you can't say the same for uh, <laughs> the Wookiee Beach Assault. In um, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> All right, so uh, you can follow me on Twitter at matwbt. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. And uh, follow the show on Twitter at SequelCast Two. If you're on Facebook, uh, please follow the Facebook page. Just search SequelCast Two. And um, if you like the show, 
please leave a nice review over on the Apple Podcast app. We could really use it because it helps the downloads, and the more downloads we get, uh, the higher the numbers look to us. So that's it's all, it's all about the algorithms. You kids like algorithms, right? Help our algorithms. I like my, my algorithms stay crunchy in milk. Um, so <laughs> with uh, next week, we'll be talking about the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean film. I cannot remember the name of it, so I'm looking it up. because uh, On Stranger movies, Tides. Uh, on Stranger Tides, which came out uh, four years after At World's End. So um, that should be a, a fun one. And it's based off a... We talked about this before the show, but um, this based is based on a novel, on a novel uh, which is odd. Not a Pirates of the Caribbean novel, but a, a, a novel by Tim Powers called On Stranger Tides, which also served as the inspiration for the long-running computer game series Monkey Island. So we, as fans of Monkey Island, we are going to have a lot to talk about. I think so. Um, I bet you Ron Gilbert had a stroke when he watched that movie. <laughs> oh, no. Well, maybe we can ask him and find out. Um, I've I've had some email conversations with him before. I can try reaching it for a different project. I can try reaching out to him. That's a good point. Or doing some digging. Okay, so next week, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tide. It's the fourth film. Uh, and uh, as a sneak peek, listeners, after that series, if you want to you know, get movies and watch these things along with us as we talk about them, we'll be doing the... Um, duology of The Fugitive and U.S. Marshals, which I forgot was even a sequel to The Fugitive. Well, I mean, it was in every movie house, second-run house, repertory house uh, uh, this on this side of the county. Uh, yeah, so um, for Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. Uh, this is Thrasher. Same. And so we go to war! All right, Jack Sparrow, how does it feel to be in Kingdom Hearts 1, 2, and 3? <laughs> Scallywag is coming up.